you ever spend the night at the woman's place? Come to me. I always try not to get too attached to a place, to objects, or to people. Hey, Life's so light. It's like an outline we can't ever fill in or make any better. and welcome back to Out of Oscar. Today we're discussing the unbearable lightness of being and 1988's best picture lineup. And to do so, I'm joined by a Daniel Day-Lewis mega fan, Sophia Simonello from the Oscar Wilde podcast. Sophia, welcome back and thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I've really reached my peak today. I have talked a little bit about Daniel Day-Lewis on my own podcast, Oscar Wilde, but I haven't yet like fully gone into just a Daniel Day-Lewis movie and one that's so early in his career, I feel. So I'm excited to talk about this today with you. And it was my last film of his that I hadn't seen yet. Like of all his films, the last one. Mm-hmm. So you've seen that one that's called like Nanu or something? Nanu, the French one. <laughs> yeah. So I, <laughs> this all is because, so when Phantom Thread came out, I went through his filmography and watched all of the movies that I hadn't seen yet, like stars and bars, like all sorts of weird ones that I hadn't seen. And the unbearable lightness of being was nowhere to be found Like at that time, it wasn't on streaming anywhere. So I just kind of skipped over it and then never got around to it again. So thank you for giving me an excuse to polish off my DDL filmography. And for those who are unaware or maybe haven't heard you muse on about DDL Uh over on Oscar Wilde, if you could sort of summarize why you like him so much, that would be fantastic. Yeah, of course. So I think that just on 
an acting level alone. He's our greatest living actor. He is a performer who makes all of his characters feel brand new and original. He tackles really unlikable characters, which is always something that I love for my actors. So someone who's able to play a villain like Bill the Butcher or Daniel Plainview, but also, you know, go into a costume drama and play Newland Archer in the Age of Innocence. I think he's really smart about picking projects too. We have a couple of exceptions that maybe we can get to um, later, but his career is just so beguiling. He hasn't been in too many movies, really, if you compare him to his peers or other actors his age. But yeah, there's just something about him that I've always been drawn to. And it all started when, I mean, it started when I was really young because my mom really likes Daniel Day-Lewis also. But when I was in high school, I was, it was my honors American lit class. And there were like 10 of us, it was all girls. And I remember our teacher showed us the crucible, the movie. And after we'd read the play and Every girl in the class, we were all in love with him. We thought he was just like the most beautiful man when he played John Proctor. And, you know, that just, I think I had already been familiar with his work a little bit, but it just really added to it. So with every performance I see, I'm just reminded, I think that he's just one of a kind. And it's so fascinating to read because he's such a selective actor, the roles that he's Mm -hmm. passed on, including Philadelphia, which, Uh you know, won Tom Hanks the Oscar, but he was also nominated in that category for another film. Right. Even just like, I'm so bad with Lord of the Rings terminology, but whoever Viggo Mortensen plays. Right. Yeah. He passed on Aragorn. Aragorn. But, you know, it's funny you find him beautiful in The Crucible because apparently he didn't (laughs) bathe. That's just (laughs) his method. That very much like goes along with me as well. My personality, I feel like. Let's introduce the film quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. So Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is a long title. I'm just going to call it Unbearable. Mm. Uh, Well. (laughs) It was nominated at the National Board of Review, the Globes in the drama category, when it had like seven or eight, which I found strange, and then Mm. actually won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Film. You know, that's a society that's notoriously snobby or above it, but... The film itself follows, sort of to summarize it, a love triangle against the 1968 Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia. Um, It was directed by Philip Kaufman and stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Lena Olin and Juliette Binoche, most notably. Even like Stellan Skarsgård shows up in this and I was like, oh, wow. But I like kind of screamed when I saw him. I was like, oh, didn't realize that he was going to be in this. Thought it was just those three. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But a a European cast, essentially. Mm -hmm. Let's sort of get into the film. It's produced by the Saul Zanz company. He did an English patient, although it's produced by Orion Pictures, which I find curious in terms of award prospects because Orion notably flubbed on a few of their films. Um, and then they ceased to exist, I guess, in the mid-90s, at least in its original form. So straight off the bat, I'm like, okay, I can see why this wasn't nominated, even if it has like even a lot of the English patient company, like Anne Roth's the costume designer, Walter Murch is an assistant editor. 
but it's missing something. It's a three-hour drama that sort of spreads its plot really thin. And um, it's not the greatest film. It was still like interesting to watch these actors in their element. And I've decided to rename the film to Sex and Accents because that's essentially all that happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although yeah. I do like the name. I like the name too. A quick note on the name. What's funny is we have that new Nicolas Cage movie coming out called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And I kind of wonder if that's a play on this mm. title. Very close. So very funny. But anyway, this movie is, it's fascinating because it feels very, very European. Like you mentioned with our ensemble cast that we have here, but it is much more of like a feelings oriented film there isn't a lot of action really it's about these characters and their relationships but not even the drama that happens in their relationships it's about the attitudes that they have towards love towards their bodies towards sex towards commitment it's very odd in that way because it's hard I think to attach to anything in the film plot wise because it's all just kind of about how these characters are like moving through this world and I think the way that the story is set up too makes that challenging because you have someone um, you have like Sabina the Lena Olin character who we kind of leave Tomas and Teresa behind for a little bit to just follow her on a separate journey that she's going on so it does meander quite a bit and there isn't a lot there that I think you would find in a typical best picture nominee. I think a lot of times here we do see like very story um, driven films and this almost feels like a Fitzgerald's novel, like an adaptation of something like that. I mean, this comparison came because of who the cinematographer was then mm-hmm. Nikist, who I'm just like, okay, you're the Bergman guy. Mm-hmm. Is there elements of Bergman in this film? And there's certainly dialogue that reminisces that love, desolation, you know, how, how can you make love without being in love in Swedish? I just imagine has like a really good ring to it. Um, but then again, it's like a film that is really philosophical and also a sociological study of love and I guess, art under Mm -hmm. Soviet pressure Mm -hmm. or, you know, repression. Um, But a very Americanized version of it, even if that's not entirely accurate, because Mm -hmm. it just seems like, you know, the nudity and like the endless sex is just there to like excite an audience who has just come from like, I don't know, Rain Man or something. (laughs) Like it's an, it's a, also an adult drama, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, it definitely feels a little bit disingenuous. I, I think I could definitely see that. I do think this would be a really hard sell for the Rain Man crowd though, <laughs> because it's not a great um, it, example. <laughs> no, it's bad. okay. <laughs> it's okay. Rain Man is just like its own thing. We will 100% get there into mm-hmm. why and how that was so popular. But yeah, I think that the way that, and I think part of it is also that I haven't read the novel. I haven't read the source material here. So I'm not sure, I guess, how sex is depicted in that. And like, if that has 
any bearing on, you know, how this movie is photographed and directed and what they pay attention to. But I do think that the Daniel Day Lewis character here, I don't necessarily find like the sex gratuitous. I find because I find his character to be like such a he's such a watchful like observer here. He's that scientist. And that's what Daniel Day-Lewis said when he was interviewed at the time um, about this film is that he saw his character as a scientist who's fearful of the things that can't be rationalized by science. So when you think about that, that's like the type of guy who is fully able to like, he's also, I mean, he's like totally driven by lust and his conquest for women, but it's always about like their bodies and not about like the inner relationship mm. that he can have so I feel like through that lens if you're thinking about it like through the character we're viewing sex in the movie we're forced to especially at the beginning through his eyes so it, it, it can kind of feel like that weird voyeuristic is a strong word but it, it does feel voyeuristic I mean, I would use that word to describe really? how he is in yeah. the early parts of the film. Even uh-huh. like you get voyeurism through other characters, like when Teresa hallucinates the naked women at the pool, yeah, which yeah, was yeah. such a uh-huh. weird scene. And also like the way Very weird. Daniel Day-Lewis, when he comes in and he like points at her and he's got the sunglasses, I'm like, is this Guido Contini? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think to my point earlier, this film has an elusive art house vibe that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like it's come from the core of European cinema, but through imitation. If someone like Rainer Werner Fassbinder directed this film, hypothetically, let's just say he did, mm-hmm. you would have a completely different interpretation on, you know, women's bodies in, in the film and um, lost and I guess even mm-hmm. like fashion and time and place. So mm-hmm. it definitely feels like a sort of sanitized stripped back version, even if the all the elements are still there. Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to get onto, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. Um, is he hot in this film? Oh, yeah, for sure. I would say top five. Top five. Yeah. Yeah, that's all we have to talk about. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he's essentially playing a womanizer, a ladies' man, mm-hmm. however you want to yep. describe it, you know. All of the above. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh but, you know, it, it's a really refined performance and he is good in the film. Actually, all of them are good. The trio of actors, like, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Even, like, Juliette Binoche really surprised me because mm-hmm. I'm sort of thinking about her career in her doing Three Colours Blue a few years later and how mm-hmm. completely different that performance is. And then if you compare it to her Oscar-winning performance in The English Patient, then again has that really European uh, flair to it mm-hmm. and then Chocolat where she's with Lena Olin once again which is you know mm-hmm. that's it's, that's its own thing I mean I'm not really a big fan of Chocolat but Lena Olin I think it's is sweet. okay well because it's <laughs> about chocolate or it's just yeah I mean uh, yeah funny choice of words there no I just I I love Juliette Binoche I think she's great so I think it's just like a fun warm movie Mm. And um, I mean, I'm stopping at 2000, but if you want to keep going with her career, it's pretty fascinating, like certified copy, those type of films. Um, But Lena Olin, she just has a magnetic presence Mm -hmm. and just a character who is maybe not like 
the best written, but the actor goes above that anyway and like elevates the performance mm-hmm. and the character. And I guess she's, well, she's married to Lassie Halstrom, who wrote My Life as a Dog. Anyway, that has nothing to do with her. <laughs> that has nothing to do with her performance in this film, but that just came to me. Um, mm. But I guess I wanted more scenes like that discussion they have at the ballroom with the Soviets and their mm-hmm. scoundrels. And, you know, I loved that, especially in today's climate. I was sort of mm-hmm. using that as like a thoroughfare. But yeah, it's a film that is could have been bleaker. I know that sounds really bad to say, but like, because I get Cold War vibes from this. Mm. Do you like Cold War? I love Cold War. Okay, me too. That was my favorite film of that year. So which year are we in? 2018. Yeah, I would probably I would probably agree. Mm-hmm. Either that or the favorite was my favorite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and then I'm like, oh, am I getting Reds vibes? <laughs> but another favorite of mine. <laughs> I think Reds because of the politics and the scope, but not much else. Mm-hmm. Reds, it's definitely yeah. its own beast. And it I don't know, I feel like a sadist because I wanted to re-watch Reds as I was watching this. I'm like, that's enough long oh, yeah. films. I still yeah. haven't seen like the Batman. I can't only do three hours. Oh, watch Reds again before you do Batman. <laughs> that might be a piping hot take, but yeah, Reds is Reds is so epic in scope. And I do I wonder because so Philip Kaufman, our director here, he made the right stuff, which is also very epic. Um, and then Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which also is like very focused on human experience and feelings but has this like political undercurrent running through it so I do feel like that would make him like a good match here for this movie to tackle um, this source material to kind of get at the crux of what this film is and I, I do think I I agree with you I wish there were more scenes where you could feel the political weight there because I also was connecting it with you know our current everything that's going on right now um, with Russia and but I do feel like those that the story itself is so much more interested in like if we think about the title the lightness that's going on and how you're in the way that you feel not so much about the like intense political climate around you but again it's unbearable yeah Mm. external pressures but it's unbearable because our characters sabina is that like middle character who kind of bridges the gap between tomash and teresa Mm -hmm. but both of them find life and existence unbearable for different reasons they're unable to connect um, in different ways they're almost polar opposites until the very end, of course, which makes it devastating. Mm. But even when they have that scene where Teresa wants to photograph Sabina, Mm -hmm. and regardless of the fact that they're both women, there's that connection there that they strive for outside of that room, and it's happening Mm -hmm. there in front of them, but it's also interrupted by that man. That is why we don't have, like, these big action sequences or it doesn't feel very plot driven it almost feels like this this sort of dance right these bodies that don't like take up a lot of space like you said or you don't have to view it in that like scientific way but the way that they 
the way that their emotions work, like that's what's important. That's where we put the emphasis here. Mm-hmm. We put it on the way that they feel, not on, I don't know, these, like you said, external pressures that are there. Yeah. It's a very hard movie to talk but about because it is. it is very, very philosophical. Mm-hmm. And also just like character driven. Because I was trying to relate this to plot points. It feels like the unrest takes a back seat until you get moments like when they mention the letter and the blackmail. And But yeah, it's mainly about characters. And if you want a character-driven film that really takes its time in the same bread as something like Drive My Car, mm-hmm. perhaps find that through unbearable lightness, but also realize that it is very unique in its disposition and doesn't really carry... Uh, the traits of, you know, films like Drive My Car and other three-hour films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that Drive My Car is much tidier. It is a good comparison point because it is also, it has a similar length and it does have a very, it has a philosophical feel mm-hmm. to it and you can sit with it and pull it apart. All of the themes about grief, but I find that screenplay to be just incredibly sharp. Like you can, you can piece it all together and it works in perfect harmony. And I feel like here there are certain scenes or certain shots that I'm still trying to make sense of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And drive my car, in my opinion, was actually quite straightforward in its plot. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. actually as contemplative as I was expecting it to be. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of it is, you know, there on the surface, whereas this kind of exists in the subtext and would be a great film to, literally dissect if you were to do a study on it um Mm -hmm. what was that thing you mentioned before american honors literature or something oh yeah you could (laughs) i i would be Mm -hmm. curious to read parts of the novel i don't think i just to get a gauge of like the actual Mm -hmm. literary context but not to Mm -hmm. actually enjoy it (laughs) yeah i was reading through some reviews though and it was very mixed on whether or not it was a successful adaptation some people I think some critics and people who had read the book found that this like perfectly captured the subtext and the irony that's there, but other fans of the book thought it was a pretty poor adaptation that missed a lot that was in the book. But again, I haven't read the book, so Mm -hmm. I don't have those details, but it's interesting that it's like kind of a polarizing adaptation. I think just for Daniel Day-Lewis in this film, it's just a, it's such, it's at such a unique point in his career because at this point he hasn't yet gotten an Oscar nomination. He's just, just kind of coming up. He has gotten some critical acclaim for performances before, but they were supporting performances. Um, My Beautiful Laundrette and Mm. A Room with a View, of course. Um, But yeah, he, he doesn't get his first Oscar nomination until just a couple years later. So this is right before he becomes the Daniel Day-Lewis that we know, I think, through an Oscar, through an Oscars fan's perspective. But you can see it there. You can, I think you can see the potential in him for sure. Absolutely. I think this is so indicative of his career as a whole, where mm-hmm. I don't really see that in films like My Beautiful Laundrette, even though he is really good in that film. Mm-hmm. I don't know, especially for a lead performance, because he's, in, he's mm-hmm. only in a room with a view for... I mean, he's not there for that long. I actually haven't seen yeah, it with a very... view. I've been oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. It's one of my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis performances, actually. he's His performance is Cecil in that movie. Oh, my God. Well, the movie itself is just, 
It's wonderful. Very, very beautiful. But his performance is fascinating, especially when you consider that it came out the same year as My Beautiful Laundrette. And it's a good, I think, it reminds me a little bit of his Reynolds Woodcock performance, which this actually does too. When he first meets Teresa, it reminded me exactly of when Reynolds meets Alma. They're same. Oh, I forgot mm-hmm. to mention that. Like she's yeah. a waitress. Uh-huh. Right. And I was like, like oh my God, he trip? even had the same look in his eye. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she was gonna like trip over or something. And like <laughs> it was the it wasn't the start of something amazing as it was in Phantom Thread. It was a little bit more toned down. But yeah, I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, this is this is like an Easter egg. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a really well. He's not. He's never actively bad in his films. I think it's no. still a very good performance from him. But also, like, watch it if you love Julia Binoche. Lena Olin and Julia Binoche are fantastic. They're almost playing foils, sort of, in this movie. And Juliet really embodies this character, like the shyness of her, like just the way that she's so uncomfortable and timid. Like, I never think of Juliette Binoche that way. When I think of her now, I very much think mm. of her as um, more of the Sabina type, like a very powerful, like almost fiery woman in her mm-hmm. roles, because I think she's a very daring actress. And Lena Olin, I mean, if if that performance doesn't work, then you don't have the heartbreak or the empathy at the end. She's such a magnetic free spirit. I love her. I, I very much like felt very connected to her throughout the movie. I thought she was great. All right. So as a self-proclaimed Daniel Day-Lewis mega fan, (laughs) I am going to quiz you. This is not designed to make you Mm -hmm. flub or question your love for the man. Mm -hmm. We're just having fun. Okay, I have seven questions for you and they relate to either his career or definitely his career. And then there's a little bit of an awards thing mixed into it. Um. Let's get started. (laughs) The first question. How many times did Daniel Day-Lewis use his native accent for a character? In his entire career or for Oscar-nominated roles? Okay. So I should probably clarify. (laughs) So all of these things relate to his entire career, but only only the film. Only the film stuff. Okay. If you've ever listened to Daniel Day-Lewis Oscar speech, that's his native accent. How many times did he use that for a character? Wait, do I need to like go through his whole filmography in my mind? Okay. Well, Oscars, I'm going to answer that first, just in case I get this wrong, Mm -hmm. because I can't go through his whole filmography. So if we think of Oscars, we have, he's only used his native English accent for one phantom thread because he didn't use it for my left foot no gangs of new york no there will be blood no lincoln no -hmm. in the name of the father so just one correct oh is that that, really that's his whole career in film he only ever used that accent for phantom thread even though some people say there's like a tinge of like upper cross germanic in it which yeah yeah, yeah. i find even interesting the voice in that one is so interesting to me because I think he does go a little more effeminate in it because mm-hmm. it doesn't sound exactly like his Oscar speech. Here's his like regular person mm-hmm. voice. Yeah, it, ha- it does have that upper crestness to it. I see that. Yeah, but 
I think if you're going to look at it a little bit more broader, because, you know, okay. he doesn't sound like Abraham Lincoln or anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so you, st- you got one. Okay. Second question. Woo-hoo. Okay. Which director has he collaborated the most with in film once again? Okay. Film total. Okay. So he's made two PTA movies, two Scorsese. And would it be Jim Sheridan? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> can you name? Can you name the three films? Okay. For Jim Sheridan, I know that's My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father, and then did he do The Boxer? He did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. We're going two for two. This is embarrassing. Almost. It might be more embarrassing that I'm getting these right. Actually, than I got them wrong. Daniel J. Lewis's first screen role was an uncredited part in Sunday Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. What did his character do in that scene? He was a vandal. And what was he vandalizing? Cars, right? Yes. Great. Yeah. Okay, three for three. He thought that was like the coolest thing because he was a really rambunctious, naughty child. So they like acting was his escape, which I think is really cool. But also, like, wasn't he? Well, people knew who his father was mm-hmm. so when he started yeah. acting. Like, the thing was when he did that accent for My Beautiful Laundrette in the audition, mm-hmm. they were like, how do you have that accent? You're Cecil Day-Lewis's son. <laughs> right. Like your and, father's poet laureate. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> that was just a start on his accent <laughs> journey. Um, the fourth question. Daniel Day-Lewis has two SAG nominations for ensemble work in film. Mm. What were the two films that picked up SAG ensemble? Ooh, okay. This is really hard because I always just think of him as such an individual actor. I'm going to go Gangs of New York and Lincoln. So Lincoln is correct. Not Gangs of New York. Nine. Nine. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can we count that, please? <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I know I just find I, it hilarious oh that my nine God. was nominated. That's just That's so power. funny. That I love n- that. Yeah. It's truly just, I, I want more nominations like that from SAG. Mm-hmm. Like when the Birdcage yeah. won SAG Ensemble, like that oh, would never happen again. Oh. We just need some fun, like absolutely unhinged SAG Ensemble picks. Okay, the fifth question. The BAFTAs and the Oscars have lined up with their DDL nominations on all mm-hmm. but one film. What was the uh-huh. film? He's doing you an also accent. Told- oh, he's doing an accent. Okay. Are we, we're not going to do this again. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, oh. okay. 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 okay can I do hair. it? Can I guess? Can I guess? Oh, yeah. last of the Mohicans. Yes. That was going to be my guess. Was that okay. what you were going to say cool. anyway? Yes, okay, it was. Michael Mann. <laughs> Yes. Because I, I thought for a second, I was like, wait, is it going to be some like really it's not British Nanu. movie? No. Right. Or something weird. But yeah, Last of the Mohicans makes sense. Okay. The sixth question. Daniel Day-Lewis has won three Oscars, but what about his co-stars? How many okay. of those actors in the same film have won an Oscar that, you know, wasn't him? Mm-hmm. My God. Okay. So if you go nominations, it's a lot more, but the actual wins is quite small. Small. So the only one I can think of off the top of my f- head is Brenda Fricker for My Left Foot. I know that she mm-hmm. won. That's one. 
It okay. sounded like you're going to say at the top of my foot. I was, I was going to say it, a little slip there. <laughs> and then the okay, second. Okay. Then one. we have Gandhi. If we count that. Yes. That's, these are basically yeah. the two. Ben okay. Kingsley okay. and Brenda Fricker. I'm so glad I remembered that he was in Gandhi. Cause that's another like very, yeah. very small. He's just that's, like, that's he's... his first credited movie. Mm. Um, okay. So the last question is. According to the Hollywood legend, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, Daniel Daniel Day-Lewis and Kevin Bacon are connected by only one mere actor. Who is that actor? You do know Six Degrees. Yes, it's crazy. They're only two degrees away or one degree. I don't know how it works, but only one actor connects them. Oh my god, I'm gonna be you probably on this need a one hint. forever. Yeah, okay. Probably need a hint. Um they were in Lincoln. That's just- I was just gonna ask, is it Lincoln? Okay. That's like that was my okay. Hmm. Well, my first instinct for Lincoln is to say Tommy Lee Jones. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It is. Wow. <laughs> but what's the film that? What are they connected? Bacon? They're well, in. What in, in so the name what, of the Father? So what are Kevin Bacon and Tommy Lee Jones have in common? What's their film that they share? You didn't ask me. I'm not a Kevin Bacon fan. I'm a Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> fan. <laughs> Do you want the answer? Yeah, you can tell me. It's just it's, not in my head at the moment. It's JFK. Oh, another so, three-hour epic. <laughs> so Tommy Lee Jones and is you know is like the median between Kevin Bacon and Daniel Day Lewis, and two presidential films connect them. True. Oh wow, this is getting too deep. We got to move on. The more on. you know. So you basically ace the test. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of myself and embarrassed. You gave me a little bit of help on that one, though. Yeah. So if you want to count it as six, we can count it as no, six. No, let's say seven for seven. I think he would, okay. Daniel Day-Lewis would be proud. Should we move on to the Best Picture nominees of 1998? Oh, oh, I got the year wrong. So our nominees are The Accidental Tourists, Dangerous Liaisons, Mississippi Burning, Rain Man, Who, Which One, and Working Girl. So yeah, let's start with The Accidental Tourist, uh, a film which is quite bad. Uh... (laughs) Sometimes the road of life takes a few unexpected turns. Do you picture us getting married sometime? Do you plan on staying with Muriel forever? But in the end... (laughs) Sorry. Life is no accident. I think it definitely has a writing problem and a tonal problem. Uh, mm. It's very corny and it's super awkward. I was amazed at some reviewers calling this like the funniest film of 1988. Roger Ebert was one of them, mm-hmm. which was like blew me away because I didn't laugh a single time. And I don't think this is like a whoosh scenario. I think the film definitely has like a, a problem. Uh, we're starting with the bad, by the way, in case anyone is wondering. But I figured. That, that score... <laughs> Has to be one of the worst John Williams has ever done. Um, <sighs> there's a scene when they're in that 
clothing shop, whatever that may be, like the fashion outlet. And he runs into an old friend, William Hurt's character, who's just lost his son. Um, and then his marriage is falling apart. And she almost says, you know how it is about like having children. And then he looks over at the child who is Gina Davis's character's son, I guess. And they just have like a, like a look or a, like, like, like mm-hmm. a gaze, like a knowing gaze. And it just fades to black. And it was like, what was that? Like, what did I just watch? Do you know the scene I'm talking about? Or am I sounding crazy? Yeah, no, 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 no. I know what you're talking about. I was, I was trying not to laugh because the way that you are describing it, it's just, I think when I think about the eighties and like certain types of movies that were really popular back then, the accidental tourist, it makes sense. I think why people Mm-hmm. really liked it then you have a lot of these films that are about some sort of like family or domestic pain and there's this journey throughout the movie for a character to reach some semblance of happiness by mm-hmm. the end to find love to find themselves and a certain type of score is a really big part of that and i i I was, I had a different experience than you. I will say like the John Williams score worked on me in a very corny, sappy way. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like by the end, I, it, this, the way that the score kind of swells, it, it definitely achieves, I think what the tone of the film is going for there. Mm-hmm. Like I, I do, I don't, I wouldn't say like, I'm not going to go queue up the accidental tourist score mm-hmm. and listen to it as I'm working. But it very much, it reminded me a little bit of how in terms of endearment, the score is used. Yeah. It's a bit similar. And that was, I mean, a huge 80s movie. Yeah. Well, even just describing like those 80s films of Mm -hmm. grief and then a catalyst will Mm -hmm. occur within the character and then they're on a sort of journey. I did think of, you know, the big Oscar players, Ordinary People, terms mm-hmm. of endearment i think this film is more comparable than terms of in- to terms of endearment than it is ordinary people i mean mm-hmm. i love both those films just for the record yeah yeah i know tonal misfire is definitely something that is overused in film criticism especially as of late but for this film this just wasn't like a connective tissue it, it was not for me i th- i thought there were some <laughs> scenes that were just like actively bad but you know We'll get to the good yeah. parts because there were some. I think that you do have to really think about Ann Tyler as an author. I think this is a movie where if you're watching it out of 1988, like if you're where we are in 2022, it's helpful to have read the book. Like it mm-hmm. just, I've read the book and it is like the tone matches perfectly it is like a really, it's a successful adaptation when you're familiar with her writing style Mm -hmm. and just how she always has these like very wacky characters who have just an odd job, like how Gina Davis's Muriel Pritchett is like, Mm -hmm. that is very typical of Ann Tyler novels and same with the William Hurt performance. So I would say like tone wasn't as much of an issue for me. I think though it is like if you were just watching it like today, it would, it would come across as very strange. Like it, it did strike me at first as being very bizarre because Mm -hmm. I first watched the movie before I had read the book and immediately the thing I would say that was bad was William Hurt's performance. 
Totally. Because yeah. he says, like, he'll just, at first I was like, what is going on with this character? He'll just say phrases and the delivery is like, when you're traveling to Atlanta, make sure you, and it's like very robotic Plain. and completely just like void of any life. Mm. But I will say that again, this character in the book, like that is, that's the character. Like he is very much like that. Which is just interesting. totally drained. Because when I think of William Hurt, um, I do think he is, someone who thrives on monotonous delivery, even though Mm -hmm. he won an Oscar for kiss of the spider woman, where he's playing a very flamboyant character. But Mm -hmm. I think of films like children of a lesser God uh, broadcast news, of course, like how can you pass that up? Mm -hmm. But I also think if you're going for someone who is deadpan and slightly devoid of life, William Hurt in the eighties is really the only actor you can pick for a role like that. You could pick someone like Harrison Ford, who we'll get into later because he's in Working Girl. But I think, mm-hmm. I know I look, people are quite crit- critical of his performance in this film, but yeah. you know, I never really expect much from him anyway. So mm-hmm. it wasn't really something that bothered me. Yeah. It's, it bothered, like I said, it bothered me at first, like the first time that I watched it, but he actually is perfectly cast. And that is exactly how the character is supposed to be, mm-hmm. which is just, Again, it's like it's choices, I think, in the original story and whether or not you think that is a good source material for a film adaptation. And I think for a lot of today's audiences, it's not. I mean, I I feel like everyone I talk to who isn't like my parents, they I feel like people my age either haven't heard of this movie or don't like it. Mm hmm. So it does come across, I think, as very dated. On to like the more positive elements. Mm-hmm. I will start with Kathleen Turner, who mm-hmm. I really love in this film. And also I just love that blend of like old school royalty that she has that like mixes perfectly with the 1980s. Like mm-hmm. what an actress of the era, but also someone who exists also in the past. Uh-huh. It's such a shame what happened to her film career because generation before me like my dad for instance like he Uh knows who Kathleen Turner is like he always mentions like where is Kathleen Turner Mm -hmm. if I'm watching a Kathleen Turner movie Mm -hmm. so I still need to see Peggy Sue got married her leading uh nominee nomination rather but I really like her in this film and Gina Davis we have to get to because she won best supporting actress but we have to talk about it (laughs) well what did you have to say Oh, yeah. First about Kathleen Turner. I love her here. I think, have you seen Body Heat? The other Lawrence Kasdan, William Hurt, Kathleen Turner team up? Body Heat? It's an erotic thriller. I've heard of it. Sorry, I was thinking of Body Double. That was not the... Which has another person we'll get to later. Um, But yeah, no, it's very, very good. It's, um, but there, but she's She's fabulous in that. That's the movie that got me like hooked on Kathleen Turner. And here, I mean, she's, I don't know if I would say just as good as she is in that. I mean, it's a completely different character, but yeah, she was, she was a standout here for me too. Mm. Gina Davis. Wow. I mean, have we, and I, I love Gina Davis. Don't get me wrong, but have we ever had a 
winner in the category quite like this, <laughs> just totally off the walls. No. It Bizarre. does. It does sort of feel like that '90s character actress obsession brewing a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I also think performances like Mercedes Rule in The Fisher King are actually quite grounded as well, even if she mm-hmm. is larger than life, boisterous. Yeah, but this happy-go-lucky sort of character—it's. It's something. And it also doesn't, you know, like Gina Davis is just a very naturally funny person. Um, That Mm -hmm. clip of like her Golden Globe speech where she tricks the audience into thinking that, you know, she's had some profound experience with a fan. It's just (laughs) hilarious. Um, But it's, I think I, my, I wrote that it feels like the best and like the worst to win in its category, but like simultaneously, it is such a strange performance. Like she's kooky, crazy eyed. I'm like, is she going to blink? And then she blinked. I'm like, okay, you're not Anthony Hopkins in the Silence of the Lambs. Like you actually did blink, <laughs> but like it's um, no, I think to answer your question, we haven't really had a character as bizarre as this. I mean, like sort of we have, but cause like Marissa Tomei, but then, you know, she's not a character that exists just for like a man to have an epiphany. Like she's very much her own being yeah that that's again another thing i'm critical about with this movie that's just more of like a dated thing of just that the gina davis character is like that muriel pritchett's an early manic pixie dream girl like that is definitely the trope that we're working with here but i do think like i don't think the performance is bad i just think that the character is bizarre and i haven't seen another winner like this but I love Gina Davis. I think she's like weirdly funny in certain parts of this movie. I think also just she's so tall. So any performance, she brings a certain physicality to it, whether it's this one or a league of their own. Mm-hmm. Like when she's just singing, I'm going to lasso Santa Claus. <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. What is this scene? Um, but yeah. How are you with like supporting actress winners? Because, you know, I do want to like definitely say she's nothing like that we've ever seen in the category but like because i'm i've seen more best actress winners than i have supporting mm-hmm. actress winners but i think yeah. of like i don't know like have you seen melvin and howard mm-hmm. mary steen virgins win yes i haven't seen that but i've seen clips and i'm like is there a similarity i'm like so salty about that win because i have this whole thing about how mary tyler moore should have been supporting for ordinary people so she could have won her oscar <laughs> Oh, I thought you should have, I thought you were going to say like Kathy Amorati should have won. Oh, no, I'm like, I have like a whole, a whole um, category fraud conspiracy that I subscribe to there from that year. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I wouldn't, again, I don't know that I feel like I don't know the winners. The winners aren't coming to me like enough where I can say, oh, this is another winner that I think is just as bizarre as this because part of the reason why this win is so weird too is because it came out of nowhere no one was really expecting it yeah i think people were expecting weaver to win because Mm -hmm. she was nominated for gorillas in the mist and it was like okay now if we nominate you know someone twice in the same year we have to give Mm -hmm. it to them for one well the and the rest of the people in the category are i mean they're also in best picture nominees all of them right we have the two from working girl francis in mississippi burning Mm -hmm. and michelle pfeiffer in dangerous liaisons who i love in that 
so when you look at the category, I think when you look at her competition, it's just, it's even crazier that she beat the competition. Mm-hmm. I think so. But she also in like has the performance that just sticks out the mm-hmm. most because it is the most boisterous. And that really does totally. help when you've got like a pretty open playing field. Yeah. Um, I hear a lot of people saying this is like the weakest category in supporting actress. And then some people will turn around and say, how strong is this lineup? So I don't really know where people stand on it, but do you have a winner from the pick selection rather? Um, mine changes, but it's, it would either be Sigourney Weaver for Working Girl or Michelle Pfeiffer for Dangerous Liaisons. I'm Pfeiffer. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's a great performance. Yeah. And on that note, if you could give one Oscar to the accidental tourist, who would you give it to or what? You're going to hate this answer, but I would give it to adapted screenplay. I feel like it really, if you've read the book, like it really brings the book to life. And Mm. I actually also, you know, I I kind of ragged on Gina Davis a little bit. I really don't mind her win, especially because she read the book and she said, like, I'm going to play this character in a way where anyone who reads the book after seeing the movie, there's no way they will not picture me. They have to. I, I was going to pick Gina Davis as well because they okay. couldn't really find a category, another category, anything but cinematography. I think the cinematography in this film is, it's like, did they light it with candles? Why does it have that glare? It reminded me of, sorry, this is so off topic, but like Cyrano okay. cinematography. <laughs> where it looks When like you they've... said, with, did they light it with candles? That's exactly what I imagined. Well, you know, really quickly, I just have a fun fact about the cinematography for um, The Accidental Tourist. Do you know who lit the film or who shot the film? Former Academy president, John Bailey. Oh, goodness. (laughs) I didn't know that. Creator of the popular Oscar idea. Anyway. Oh, God. Stop. (laughs) We can move on. Oscar's fan favorite, 1988. Anyone? No. Okay. Um. But moving on to a film that I really like, Mm -hmm. and that's Dangerous Liaisons. Mm -hmm. I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. Is there anything I could do to help? Come back when you've succeeded with Madame de Torvel. Yes. And I will offer you a reward. My love. Yeah, so I'm going to start with what I love the most in this film. Mm -hmm. And it's not the costume design, although that's second. I thought you were going to say that. It's Glenn Close. (gasps) Yes. Has all the hallmarks of an Oscar-winning performance. Mm -hmm. But she didn't win. And she has fantastic monologues about the virtuosity of deceit mm-hmm. even just her saying war in extreme close-up in the last 15 minutes is like an electric bolt um the film itself i i love costume dramas just from like that's just mm-hmm. my taste Me so i'm going to love a film like this just off the bat and i did although i did try watching this i think a a few years ago, but I really could not get my head around John Malkovich in this film. I think I had just mm-hmm. come from watching him, like, I don't know, in 
a more recent action flick just like in the background I don't really remember yeah. like the story but he was just like a glaring problem in the film and I'm like I can't do this although re-watching mm-hmm. it or instead like actually finishing it I did think he's actually quite well cast for someone who has to be devilish but not necessarily straight evil even if he is an awful person and he's very punchable but there's also this like seduction to him like I don't know the way Mm -hmm. he like sits on sofas is very forward (laughs) yeah it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people think of that casting when they are critiquing the movie and I know a lot of people aren't fans of the casting or think that it's odd and I think it's perfect casting I mean Mm -hmm. I I feel like you're totally right. There is something just a little off about him, but there's that seduction that's there that you're like, wait, why, why am I attracted to you? I'm not saying that I am when I watch it, but like, if you're a a woman in that movie, like there's something gross about him, but there's also something enticing about him. And I think that that's what you want in a character like that. He is the ideal I think there you can't mm. get someone who's just like standard handsome in the part because it's not as fun you have to like, there has to be something there that makes yeah. it work I mean if we think about the first English staging I think Alan Rickman was the mm-hmm. um Vicomte. and you know that's someone who is handsome so it probably takes another breadth of like understanding when you're watching a film to look past the looks and see like the manipulation. But when you have someone who mm-hmm. looks how John Malkovich Mac- looks, I'm not attacking his looks or anything. I'm just saying that like no, you yeah. definitely see the manipulation and the dirt before you mm-hmm. see the infatuation that someone like Glenn Close's Marquise has with him. Yes. And if you think about like other actors too, who are, who are famous and who could, who were handsome, famous, and who like could have pulled off the part, but still wouldn't have been right. Like I think about like a Jeremy Irons type, like that mm-hmm. has that handsomeness to him, but he's still like, and he can do villains, but it's just not quite right. They, there has to be something just a little bit wrong with the character. And that probably sounds mean for John Malkovich, but it's, it just, it's right. Every time I watch this movie, I get it. And I feel like it's kind of ingenious casting. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jeremy Irons, you know, his voice definitely carry, carries performances mm-hmm. as well. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas John Makovich is just doing an American. Well, they're both doing American accents. They're all, yeah. Stuff. They're all it's very doing American. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, even though an English accent is not necessarily more correct, but at least right. we're like on the continent, the same continent. Yes. You feel like it should be an English accent when you're watching some of these films. I think just because that's what we're used to in costume dramas. They typically do go for a British accent even if they're in France or Russia or anywhere else (laughs) but then you have something like tragedy of Macbeth where it's like just do your native accent like exactly but Mm -hmm. I just because I'm have I'm curious about the play Les Lisons Dangereuses and recently there was a revival on Broadway which was a London transfer and you Mm -hmm. had Liev Schreiber in the lead mm. well, in the role of the Vicomte. But I think in London, it was Dominic West. So it's sort of like a character mm. character that's hard to cast, it seems. Because how do you yeah. go and pick Leah Schreiber? That seems a really It random. does. 
And when you said that, I'm like trying to think of who today could do it. And I, I think it has to be someone it's, it's so hard. I think it has to be someone with the ugly hot label. If you've ever heard people say like, you have to someone who's like ugly hot Adam Adam driver Driver? might be like, yeah, I was just, (laughs) I was, I, Adam driver. Yeah. I was just thinking of him, especially because, you know, there's like, uh, although he's very tall. Um, I mean, that doesn't really big. Yeah. Yeah, Um, but because I mentioned the play, there's also a Mm -hmm. big change in the play to the film that really makes the film memorable. And that's the final 10 minutes. You have a jewel, which I don't want to give away if you haven't seen, but there's a jewel. And then you see the marquees basically throwing a tantrum. The powder is everywhere, like the floors. And it's just amazing. And then she visits the opera where she is booed by pretty much everyone symbolizing that sort of like group thing that goes on in high society Mm -hmm. and how like, um, just motivations change with like the wind, that sort of thing. And then that amazing scene where she wipes away her makeup or her vanity, if you want to look at it that way, in the mirror. And then that it's such a striking image and it's so, it's such a, you know, climax for this film. Mm-hmm. On the stage version, version, it ends with a card game. So... <laughs> a great transition to film, which I think is like one of the best elements in, in this work. When you think about, you know, play to screen adaptations, it's definitely up there in terms of like negatives. I will say the pacing can be a bit dry. Yeah. When I think about this movie too, I, my favorite things, I mean, the costumes and the production design are just like top tier, Mm -hmm. just incredible, beautiful, but the performances specifically Glenn Glenn in this movie, because I watched it for the first time, like at a really young age when I shouldn't have seen it. And I just remember just being in awe of Glenn and everything that she does here. She's so captivating and just deliciously evil, but you have to, I mean, she's just this, this perfect character for this, story and if you think about of all of the women that glenn close has played in her career i think this is her signature role that i think of i mean i know people will say fatal attraction or she's had many really but this just proves again to me that she doesn't shy away from playing these Mm -hmm. really challenging women and i her performance the camera loves her she can communicate everything with just a single look I really don't have anything negative to say about this movie. I yeah. I love it. Yeah, there's definitely um, too many close-ups in the film. I will say that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this definitely feels like one of the better Oscar losses, if you will. And it's so sad that Glenn mm-hmm. Close has like at least two of that in her career. I know. I know. It's so sad. I agree. It's just... Ugh. And if you could give this movie one Oscar? I would give Glenn Close Best Actress. I do think that Jodie Foster's performance in The Accused is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Like any other year, she can have that Oscar. But I think the fact that she wins for Silence of the Lambs, which is just a far superior win in my book. And Glenn gives one of my favorite performances ever given in the category here. I have to give the edge to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was I had written down Glenn Close, but then I also have to shout out James Akerson's costume design. Yeah. And they know how brilliant the work is. I mean, that whole opening montage with them mm-hmm. getting ready, that's when you know the costume designer is confident in their work. Yes. And right. there's also, you know, a big a little bit of a shout out to Madonna. <laughs> It's near the end of the movie. That's the dress that uh-huh. Madonna wore during the Vogue MTV famous presentation. So I love there, it. There you go. Um, moving on to a film which is slightly worse. <laughs> Just so, a little bit. Mississippi Burning, a film that I studied for English. Oh, oh wow. Okay. The moment those three kids disappeared, it was news. The moment the three civil rights workers disappeared, it was news. Something's all right in the sand. Now get out of here. You'd kill Frank? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't give it no more thought than wringing a cat's neck. These people crawled out of a sewer, Mr. Ward. Yeah, it was under a semester regarding, I think it was discrimination. Uh huh. Mind you, we also watched Crash. So, oh yeah. Okay. Maybe not okay. the best uh, gauge on that topic, but also mm. this is like this goes to, and I think I've mentioned this a few times on my pod about my interest in the Oscars, is because I used to study a lot of films in English that were Best Picture nominees. So this mm. was obviously one of them. Uh, at the time, I actually really liked this film, but. You know, you rewatch it and there's there's definitely a void in it. You're like, okay, this is not mm-hmm. as fluid as it could be. It's also, you know, civil rights without the black voices. And there's a huge thread of contribu- controversy that followed this mm-hmm. film. Um, Hackman and Defoe, they have good chemistry, but I don't know. I really don't have much to say. Like there's this impending doom that follows the film. I really do like McDormand in this film. And a lot of people forget that she's in it, which I don't know. She's always stayed with me. I always remember that monologue she has about racism and its roots. Mm -hmm. I think that this movie is very well made. It like, it's easy to get sucked into it. I think like when you're watching it, just, it has this like strong crime thriller kind of propulsion that moves it along and, that also is really due to the fact that Gene Hackman and Francis McDormand in particular, I think are just actors at the top of their game here, even though I think they both give better performances in other films like Gene Hackman for me. And he's one of my favorite actors from like his generation for sure. <laughs> Every role that he takes on is just already lived in. Like you just, he has this sense of like warmness. He's, he has a sense of warmth and just emotion that he brings to a role. And it just feels like this is who he is. He's been like, he's actually this character. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that with both of them here makes it a stronger movie. But I also said, I wrote down that film Twitter would have been in love with Willem Dafoe in this movie, even though they would have torn the movie to pieces. (laughs) Of what you said about Hackman is interesting to me because I have a slightly different interpretation on why mm. I like him. And that's uh-huh. he plays, he's a very benevolent actor. Yeah. Like he just leaves the characters quite 
easily, but that's what makes his presence so strong and my praise mm-hmm. for him like so high. So yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I just really like how Hackman, it sort of seems like he's just such a natural at it. Like it seems like he's taking a exactly. back seat, but he's not. He's mm-hmm. just very good at what he does. You know, I'm thinking yeah. of like the French connection first and foremost mm-hmm. when I say that. And what an interesting win that was for leading actor at the time. Right. Yeah. When I, and when I mentioned like Hackman being like a warm person, that's Hackman as a person outside of the roles. So it's interesting because mm-hmm. when he talks about like the French connection or Mississippi burning these movies where he's playing like FBI agents or cops, like he has very critical things to say always about the screenplay, about the issues at hand and he seems to be this person who doesn't want to share these like issues in a way that will hurt people. Mm-hmm. And w- with the characters, he just like, he fully, I think, yeah, you're right. It, it is a very like naturalistic approach. To your point about it being a crime thriller, like it, yes, it's a film that grips you immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think it is well-written to, to a point considering its subject matter it is actually like quite rewatchable which i find like kind of interesting i remember there was a point i would recommend this film you know just after studying it in english and i'd rewatch mm-hmm. it with the groups of people i'd recommend it to but there's also a catharsis in this film that lends itself favorably to the audience but didn't necessarily exist in real life and i think that's the real problem uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's very much a white man's burden tale. Mm -hmm. And they also knew that at the time, like this isn't a case of something where we're looking at this in 2022 and see that with fresh eyes. This is a case of they, they knew that that was a problem then and Mm -hmm. it was received really poorly and with a lot of controversy, which is why I always think it's interesting that it got so many Oscar nominations when you think of all of the controversy, but also this is a year where if you have a well-made drama, it's probably going to get in because of what was happening with the box office being predominantly comedies in action mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. And if you could give Mississippi Burning one Oscar, what would you give it? Oh, I had trouble with this one. Yeah. I just went really like unoriginal and picked what the Academy picked. And that I was did too. best cinematography. <laughs> mm-hmm. I yeah. did too. It is very well shot though. It is. Um, yeah. Oh boy. Next up is our best picture winner. Yeah. Barry Levinson's Rain Man. You know, the euphoria guy's dad. Of course, I'm an excellent driver. You know how to drive? Yeah. Right now, right now, right now. You never, never touch the steering wheel when I'm driving. Do you hear me? Yeah. Do you hear me? Of course, I don't have my underwear. What? Rain Man. Okay, I don't really know where to start with this film. Like, okay, obviously it's dated and Hoffman's performance doesn't stand the test of time. Um, but there's definitely an accessibility thing with this film. Like, it is. Mm-hmm. it has a wide audience just from the get-go, like we're watching a buddy comedy that is maybe comparable to something like The Odd Couple. Um, and it's, I mean, I still know people who love this film. Like we'll mm-hmm. watch Rain Man when it's on or like, you know, it just, it's a film that 
I don't know, they're drawn back to because they remember at the time when it was released and how successful it was. Think of its Oscar reputation as like a clause for this is a good film and, you know, still revisit it. I think it relies too much on like manufactured emotions. Dustin Hoffman's performance it's we know how he is as a as an actor very serious method can be actually quite brutal in his um craft especially with fellow actors think about how he is in this role and how seriously he takes on everything and there's just no warmth there's no openness for other characters and actors to interject and make it feel natural because he's thinking just about himself in that scene. He consumes the screen and in like a bad way. And I have a hard time believing that people thought this was a good portrayal at the time. If you want to take away, yes, how we think about people now who are neurodivergent, I guess we have definitely moved past the point of you actors really have to transform and play Uh people who are beyond their natural self to succeed and to earn Oscars and that sort of thing. But. Oh, I, I think Dustin Hoffman is like, is really good in this movie. Um, That might be like a, that's a, maybe a bad, bad opinion to have, but it's fine. I think that actors who play neurodivergent people later on, after him copy this performance honestly oh like music? this sets the tone yeah not even music like um i, I, I can't think a of ex- music <sighs> but it's i just i feel like he kind of he created that and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i mean i it obviously now is a very thorny topic if you think about and that was pauline kale's main criticism mm-hmm. of this movie was why couldn't why didn't you get someone with autism to play this part why does it have to be dustin hoffman doing this for over two hours like why Mm -hmm. do we have to watch him do this and i do think you he is supposed to kind of take up all of your attention when he's on screen i think that's kind of the purpose i think of where when he's on screen of what barry levinson is going for dustin hoffman's a really really complicated actor and this is at a fascinating point in his career because he is coming off the 60s where he had the graduate. Then we get to the 70s, all the president's men and Kramer versus Kramer. He is known for being horrible to work with. Mm-hmm. And he was supposed to be originally in the Tom Cruise part. And I think the smartest thing the movie did at that time was move Dustin Hoffman to this part and put Tom Cruise in the other part. Because I think that the in order for the movie to work, And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. You have to have that good pair there. And they're both huge box office draws. I mean, this movie made so much money. And it was at a time when, number one, like there was a huge surge of movies about transformations around disabilities. That was how actors would win Oscars. So it does make sense in that way that people saw this as a good performance and saw this as one that would win best actor. It of course hasn't aged well, but we're thinking of it just back then. And I think audiences then definitely saw this as a rewatchable movie about 
brothers about friendship, about like, again, going on this journey and discovering something about yourself. Mm -hmm. And it does have a rewatchability to it. So I feel like that's why Yeah, it's not on my rewatchable list personally, but I do think, yeah, it makes sense why it won. Rewatchability. And then also it's not an overly heavy film. Yes, it mm-hmm. may deal with a topic that if you zoom out is quite heavy. Um, it's <laughs> It presents itself as wholesome, you, mm-hmm. especially the final scene and mm-hmm. the revelation in their friendship and whatnot. Um, yeah. And then we think about who won the leading actor Oscar the year after. And that's, you know, your fave. Mm-hmm. Elaine, uh, he has cerebral palsy palsy mm-hmm. yeah so there's yeah there's definitely something that has shifted in terms of actors yearning for oscars it's moved more into we have to play real people as mm-hmm. opposed to transform the most although playing a real person does require some level of transformation and it's wild to think about that the first person to win an Oscar for a real person was only 40 years ago and it's become such a staple mm-hmm. for winning Oscars nowadays yeah yeah and you you see it in this best actor category first and foremost and this movie too I mean it made over 300 million dollars and it was our it was at a point where like we were used to the biggest box office earner being the best picture winner. Like if you look back Mm -hmm. at the seventies and earlier decades, but this was the last time that would happen until Titanic and it hasn't happened again since. Good. Yeah. Oh my God. Well now, Oh, good. Good God. Can you imagine if that happened now? ABC would be happy, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Don't know anything about ABC truly, but I don't like them. Um. One Oscar. Uh, this was hard because there's nothing really here that warrants that attention. I went for Hans Zimmer in school because I'm just like, I don't, I don't have anything. Um, even though my Hans Zimmer hot take is that he should have like three, four by now, but he should have won for Driving Miss Daisy. So hmm. that's- talk about a movie that hasn't aged well. <laughs> And that score hasn't either. Like it's a hundred percent synth, but you know, we still love it. <laughs> yeah. But what did you have? Hans Zimmer for score is my choice too. We're matched here. I, I think that while I definitely see what Dustin Hoffman is going for, it's not, it's not a best actor win worthy performance for me. All right. So our final nominee mm-hmm. is Mike Nichols working girl. In the land of opportunity. They're not going to give you no shot test. They're going to shoot you. Where dreams are won and lost. Spray me down? Sorry? Well, I can't very well walk around my own party clinging. Someone's about to get what she deserves. I know I'm asking an awful lot, Tess, but I... I don't know what else to do. I need you to take over. Do me a favor, be me. Be my secretary. You do, sir? Thank you, Cynthia. Hold all calls, Miss McGill? Yes, Cynthia, thank you. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? <laughs> I, I think I mentioned that 
I had a few quips with this film. And I think I still do, but now that I actually, once I started writing about the film and rewatching clips, Mm -hmm. there was definitely this newfound appreciation that came from it. Mm -hmm. It is so representative of the era. And I think we have to love it for that. Mm -hmm. Now it feels like a time capsule, even just from the opening credits, like Let the River Run by Carly Simon's plane. Mm -hmm. You see the Twin Towers in the foreground, but also... You know how like films from the 80s, just in Reagan America, there would always be that one character who like wants to be a millionaire by the summer, you know, just like that one money hungry guy Mm -hmm. that this feels like, yep, the same political climate, but also how like men and women fit into that burgeoning corporate culture Mm -hmm. that's happening at the time. And we don't really have another film like this i mean i guess we have broadcast news but that's more about you know news and media is its own thing if you wanted to talk about corporate culture Mm -hmm. that is absolutely the pinnacle of like 80s america so it's great to have this film and the hair's great anyway that's (laughs) (laughs) the hair is so great (laughs) what are your thoughts on working girl I love Working Girl. It's one of my favorite movies from the decade, I think, because it is on its surface, just a great romantic comedy. And it's the best kind of romantic comedy because the romance is the B plot. It's off to the side. Uh And we're focusing much more on our central woman and what she's going through, Tess. And I, I think that the script is just so smart, the way that it talks about how classism intersects with feminism. And it's this very, very particular feminism that existed in the Reagan era, which is, and that's what makes it, I mean, I would say that's what the dated factor is here. That's, you know, if you're watching a movie today that you wouldn't see, which is this, you know, there's only room for one woman at the top. Like you very much have that at the beginning with the clash between the Tess and the Catherine characters, but you also have just this group of other women in the story who are lifting her up and that talk to her and work with her. And it's a very, very different story in that way. And I love that it gets, the way that the script moves and almost turns into by the very end, it builds perfectly to this climax. And by the very end, every little thread is tied perfectly together. I feel that it just has a great ending and I love Harrison Ford in this movie. I think this is like, if I think of a couple example, couple of examples of like the best a man has ever looked in a movie, this is definitely up there for me. As okay. Jack Trainer, mm-hmm. Yeah. I also felt like a little bit of, I don't know, the ca- classic screwball casting in Harrison Ford in this film. Mm-hmm. And I wish he did make more romantic comedies. I think he yeah. definitely has the personality that suits mm-hmm. it. Um, but yeah, love Sigourney Weaver in this film. Joan Cusack is just, I wish she had mm-hmm. more. That's my only thing. I wanted more of her character. Uh-huh. And then Melanie Griffith is sort of like everything you want in a lead in a film like this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she has that girlish voice, which 
from our perspective makes her sympathetic, but in the world of the film makes people underestimate her. Mm-hmm. And so there's that sort of like mix yeah. and she has the wits and the ambition to carry things out. And that's very mm-hmm. like, you know, eighties America, mm-hmm. at least from my outsider's perspective. Yeah. Just as a side note, there's a moment when she has her hair in like an updo and she looks exactly like her mother in the birds. Do you know what she I'm does. talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. It like it kind of catches me off guard. They look so much alike she, there. She looks exactly like Tippi Hedron. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I love when Sigourney Weaver is like leading that man on at the luncheon, but she's only doing mm-hmm. it for corp- corporate gain. Like obviously mm-hmm. she doesn't fancy him. She knows right. how to manipulate the men in mm-hmm. the room. She wants to mm-hmm. teach Tess how it's done. And there's that dynamic that you mentioned of men and women in the office, but at a time mm-hmm. where it's like, yes, only one woman can be at the top. Otherwise, there's like a conflict between the women. They're all fighting mm-hmm. for that one position, which I mean, I love, and I know you do too, Mad Men. Mm-hmm. I love office culture in terms of like gender. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. it just makes such a great story. So, Mad Men yeah. is where you have one woman's rise up the ladder, and that's Peggy Olsen. Yeah. And in Mad Men, too, if you think about like Joan and Peggy and even Betty outside of the office, Mm. but they all have very unique ways of operating and speaking to men Mm -hmm. and the ways even that they think about other women and they talk to and about other women are all so different. And it's just, it's so fascinating to me to like study different time periods, thinking about how women interact with each other, how women want power. And I think here, too, the Sigourney Weaver character is so interesting because she definitely has like a little bit more of that like upper crust executive vibe to her where she is much more well positioned to climb up that corporate ladder. Yes. And Sigourney herself, because it's so funny you mentioned it's like screwball comedies. She thought back to that era too. She said, I've always wanted a Rosalind Russell type of role. I love that. She's also mm-hmm. hamming it up when she's in the oh, yeah. bed and she's got her leg <laughs> in the air and she's like yeah. fighting off the nurses. Uh-huh. That was hilarious. But then she also <laughs> walks into that room with such power that comes mm-hmm. from the actor, you know, primarily. Right. But I think it's definitely a Sigourney Weaver. Just she has, she's also quite tall. I mean, not that that necessarily mm-hmm. matters, but it helps though. With, with mm-hmm. her jacket over her shoulders, she looks like mm-hmm. a bit of a, it's going to sound corny as hell, but like a superhero walking into that room. The yeah. overcoat is trailing like a cape does. And, mm-hmm. you know, even when she's on crutches, she's still like strong. She's also dumbfounded when they ask about how did you come up with this idea? And she's mm-hmm. caught in a close-up and you can see the calculations going on behind the eyes. Mm-hmm. And she's seriously yeah. lost, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, love and, Yeah, and just quickly about Melanie Griffith. Her casting here is fascinating because she was so underestimated at this point in her career. She was basically just known as this like sex pot woman who was just known for nudity in movies, like being in body double, being the sex symbol. And this movie she tackles that head on it Mm -hmm. right it goes perfectly with Tess as a character like they are very similar in that way so I love a little bit of meta casting and 
you know, she went into that role just like Tess with everyone underestimating her. Mm -hmm. And after the movie, she gets great reviews on her performance. People take her seriously. And an Oscar nomination and a Mm -hmm. win for the Golden Globes where she, I think she makes a joke at the beginning of her speech just about her status as a sex symbol. She said last year I was like the best Golden Globes or something. And, you know, (laughs) the, the crowd laughs. But I just quickly, I want to shout out my favorite part in the film, which is just, it's very short-lived, but it's just whenever Joan Cusack is on, it's like, it's obviously Joan Cusack in like her peak Cusack, you know, mm-hmm. like yes. in and out, <laughs> that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of like School of Rock as well when she like lets her hair down. Yeah. But there's also so much of her broadcast news character in this as well. It sort of feels yeah. like an extension on that. But the way mm. she walks in with Harrison Ford, let's just say, like into the office, like Tessa's office, which is obviously not her own office, but she knocks on the door and says, you're decent, and <laughs> <laughs> raises her eyebrow with that like garish, you know, eyeshadow. eyeshadow. It's so good. <laughs> it is really Like good. I said, I, I wanted- love her. I, yeah. And I wanted more, but you know. Oh, also, mm-hmm. how could I forget Adam's family values? That's like peak Cusack oh, as well. Yeah. But peak. yeah, um, we had such a good time talking about the good things. So let's just leave it at that. And let's move on okay. to what <laughs> <laughs> what Oscar we would give Working Girl. I think I would give it Best Original Screenplay. I love the screenplay. I think it's like... it wasn't even nominated. Mm-hmm. And it's just so it's such a smart script. But there, I mean, there are a couple I would give it. I love Sigourney too, but I'm going to give the edge to original screenplay. Yeah, I gave it to Sigourney Weaver, which is funny because I gave Gina Davis and Sigourney Weaver Oscars in this segment, but Michelle Pfeiffer is my winner from that (laughs) (laughs) that year. Regardless of the competition, it's okay. (laughs) That concludes our discussion on... The nominees, Daniel Day-Lewis, which I forgot we did, (laughs) and Unbearable Lightness of Being. Two questions just to finish this off. Yeah. Did Unbearable Lightness of Being deserve a nomination at the 1988 Oscars in Best Picture? You know, despite being less than enthusiastic about this lineup, I would not give it a best picture nomination. I am. I'm the same. Even if this is quite a, I don't think it's like a tepid year, but it's, you know, it's not the strongest lineup. It, there was too much room for the rain man to step up. I think. Yeah. I'm just not as passionate about these, but there's some great movies this year too, that I love die hard who framed Roger rabbit big. Mm. They're just fun. Very different. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Um, and from those five nominees that the Academy chose, who is your winner? Because my one is hands down Dangerous Liaison. My winner is also hands down Dangerous Liaisons. Okay, great. Although Working Girl would have made a really interesting win in yeah. just song That would be my runner-up. <laughs> <laughs> song and picture. The first for everything. Yeah, well... Thank you for joining me today. Um, it's been so much fun. Where can people find Oscar Wilde? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It was so fun discussing 
my love for Daniel Day Lewis and this best picture lineup and the unbearable lightness of being. You can find my podcast, Oscar Wilde, on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. We release episodes every Thursday, a little more frequently now that we're in Oscar season, um, but you can find those wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anything like that. And you can find me on Twitter at Sophia underscore Sim, C-I-M. And out of Oscar releases every fortnight, you can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can also find me on Twitter at out of Oscar pod and my personal Twitter from there, which is at Jimmy Konofsky. That's my name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye.